All right. Uh, why don't you open with me to the Gospel of uh, Luke? And uh, you may recall the first week we kind of looked at the beginning of Mark and the beginning of Matthew to see how uh, they begin the story of Jesus by appealing to the grand story of Isaiah, right? Mark begins with a long quotation of Isaiah. Matthew began uh, with what? How does Matthew begin? What kind of? Yeah, with the genealogy. Remember, he hits on all the covenants, all the key covenants of uh, Abraham, David, and uh, how the exile, how Israel violated the covenant made at Sinai. Luke begins uh, his story. He tries to show the continuation of the Old Testament story, not with a genealogy and not with a quotation from Isaiah 40, uh, but by telling you the story of a, a very old Jewish couple, uh, godly, uh, who aren't able to have kids. But now, just, even just right there, does that story ring any bells? So, of course, it's, it's Zechariah and Elizabeth, but what other stories are echoing as you are introduced to this old couple who can't have kids? So Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, right? So already this Luke begins the story by echoing these, these uh, stories from the book of Genesis. And so uh, I'm really summarizing here, but uh, Zechariah receives this kind of vision experience from an angel that he's going to have this son who's going to be a prophet and a herald. And uh, go to chapter 1 with me, Luke 1, verse 67. And he sings a song. Zechariah sings a song. The early chapters of Luke are great. Um, they, they read very much like a musical, actually. So if, you're, if your Bible's helpful for you, they'll format all these poems just embedded into the narratives. Do you see that there in Luke chapters 1 and 2? So it's, it's serious. It's like a musical. People just break out in song spontaneously throughout these early chapters of Luke. And uh, Zechariah does that when he uh, thinks about the, the destiny and the future of his son, John. And this is the song that he sings. And so if you've been here the last couple weeks, I just want to tune our ears to language and ideas from the book of Isaiah in, uh, in Zechariah's song right here. So Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said or spoke through his holy prophets long ago. Anybody? So salvation from uh, a descendant of David, as he said through his prophets, he just tells you, in case you're wondering, this is what God said would happen through, through the prophets. What, uh, so this is good memory quiz here. What chapters of Isaiah should be ringing in our ears when we hear, when we hear this? So we had uh, key, key Messiah passages, and they were here in, in uh, chapters 1 through 12. What, where does the, the shoot come up from the stump, and the shoot is the Messiah growing up? Oh yeah, this is good, like Bible quiz, right? Okay, that's chapter 11, chapter 11, 
And uh, the spirit of the Lord comes on this uh, descendant of David, and he brings justice to all the nations. What about a king who will bring light to those who live and walk in darkness? It's another Christmas card passage. Mm -hmm. Chapter 9. What about this mysterious child who will be born to the young unmarried woman named Emmanuel? Yeah. Seven, seven, nine, and eleven are kind of the key um, Messiah passages in the early chapters of Isaiah. So Zechariah, he just throws a couple lines out there to uh, remind you of all this. And what will this, uh, what will this horn of salvation through David be? What will he bring? Verse seventy-one. He'll bring salvation from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to whom? To Abraham. So look, in his own way, Matthew began with a genealogy about Abraham and David and exile. Luke begins with all these poems reminding you about the covenants with David and with Abraham and how Jesus is fulfilling that storyline. He's doing the same thing. Matthew did it with a genealogy, which is kind of boring. Luke does it through poetry, which is much more interesting, I guess, or at least in the opinion of some of us. Verse 74. To rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and just excuse me, in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So look at look at what he says here. Um, the promise of the Messiah to come. And what's he going to bring? So you just kind of look down at Zechariah's words. Just kind of throw it out there. What's he bringing? Salvation. Salvation. And how is salvation understood here in this setting? In Zechariah's words. Does it mean going to heaven when you die? Deliverance from the enemies. So, and who are, who are the enemies? Just think in terms of the context here. Mm-hmm. So he says uh, from enemies... <laughs> And who are the enemies? They're people who hate us. <laughs> right? Look at what he says right here. Those who hate us. And you, if you look at verses 74 and 75, they are people who prevent uh, God's people from being able to serve him in, in freedom. So, so in Zechariah's day, who are, what big bad empire are we talking about here? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so the people of Rome, this is first century, Jesus' time, Pilate, Roman, and so on. Roman governor. Okay. So, in other words, um, we know that uh, the Messiah is going to bring salvation. Last week, we uh, spent a good chunk of our time in Isaiah 13 through 27. And if the focus... Uh, here was on Israel and their corruption in chapters 1 through 12. Chapter 13 through 27 widened the scope. And who's the focus of these chapters here in Isaiah? So it's just all the nations of the earth. And so the idea was there's going to come a judgment for Israel. And uh, so this is just kind of a basic scheme here. Let me, I'll just kind of, Oh no, did it all go away? Oh, here we go. All right. 
Josh has been playing with my computer. That Josh. Okay. So, um, let's see. There's Israel and the nations uh, have sinned. Yes? That's a pretty, pretty big theme that we've seen uh, in Isaiah. So what is God going to bring? He's going to bring judgment. And on the other side of judgment, he's going to bring, you could just say, salvation. And that's linked to the Messiah. Um, it's linked to uh, justice for, for the nations and so on. And the judgment is going to come on Israel and the nations as well. So this is kind of the big picture storyline. God's going to judge Israel's sin and afterwards bring salvation through the Messiah. God's going to judge the nation's sin and afterwards bring uh, salvation through uh, the Messiah's kingdom. So we, the last poems that we read from these last chapters here, 24, 25, 26, 27, you know, it depicted, you may recall, that God's going to throw a huge like wedding banquet and invite all the nations of the earth, and he's going to make provide really good wine and really good meat, and uh, remove the shroud of death and sin that's covering over all of the nations. Very powerful images here. So that's the big picture storyline that Isaiah has been painting, and that's uh, precisely what, uh, what Zechariah picks up on here. Okay, so look at what he does next here, Zechariah in verse 76. And he says, And you, my child, who's he referring to? John, John the Baptist. You will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. Prepare the way. <coughs> Anybody? What chapter of Isaiah are we hitting on here? It's hitting on the same chapter. Uh, we're going to read these verses today. They're literally the first sentence here, first sentences of Isaiah chapter 40. And so uh, in the shape of the book of Isaiah, uh, the exile of the people to Babylon represents that final big act of, uh, of judgment. And so the whole hope is on the other side of exile, one day, uh, God is going to fulfill his promises to bring salvation through the Messiah. And so there's going to come a prophet or a messenger who's going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Now here in Isaiah 40, it's all about, we're going we're gonna to see, it's all about Yahweh coming to save and redeem and to fulfill his promises. In the Gospel of Luke, who uh, does the word Lord refer to? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. So right off the bat here, uh, Zechariah is saying something very profound that the story, the story about Jesus is the story about Yahweh bringing salvation to his people Jesus is taking the role of Yahweh in the storyline of the Gospel of Luke that's the idea so it, we'll flesh all this out as we go <clears throat> so John the Baptist is coming before to prepare for the coming of Yahweh's salvation uh, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember this theme from earlier on in Isaiah? Right? Come, let's reason together. Israel's a nation that's corrupt. 
and sinful, but somehow, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be made white as snow. Though they're crimson, like uh, though they're red as crimson, they will become white like wool. How's that going to happen? Right? That was a, that's been a theme here developing in Isaiah. Isaiah's uh, sins are atoned for and forgiven. How? Remember when he has the vision of Yahweh in the temple? How are his sins atoned for? So there's like burning, fiery coal put on his lips that sears away. This idea of a purging, there's, a, there's going, somehow forgiveness is going to take place. But how? That hasn't been worked out yet in the book of Isaiah. John is going to announce that forgiveness of sins is possible. How? Because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness. Anybody? So all of this language is taken right from Isaiah chapter 9. Messiah will come to bring light to those who live in darkness. It will shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, and he will guide our feet into the path of peace. Hebrew word for peace? Yeah, there you go. Look at you guys. So this is the Hebrew <laughs> word that most people know. Shalom. Shalom. Which, so in English, peace, we think of absence of war. You know, no war. No conflict. Um, and that's true in Hebrew, but the, in, in the Hebrew Bible, there's all these positive connotations alongside it. Not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of harmony and wholeness and abundance and so on. So in many ways, I think what uh, Zechariah has done in this little poem is he just kind of summarized the theology of the book of Isaiah. That uh, you finish reading the book of Isaiah, and uh, you recognize that there is a promise for a coming Messiah, for Israel and all of the nations uh, to bring to bring salvation, um, but that salvation was going to come somehow through a catastrophic judgment uh, that will come on those who oppose God's plans, uh, the enemies, or those who hate us. So, uh, if you wanted to, you know, this song is kind of like a little Cliff Notes version of the Book of Isaiah in a way. You could read Isaiah, or you could just read this poem. This poem's a lot shorter, <laughs> and you get the main point. But, uh, but really, all, the, all, is, all this poem is meant to do is to point you, point you to the book of Isaiah. So again, it's another example of how the biblical authors, the New Testament authors, as they talk about Jesus, they explain everything leading up to him and who he is and what he's doing by borrowing uh, all of the language and the storyline from, uh, from the book of Isaiah. So here's what we're going to do today. We've gotten like this far, so far. We've done this, kind of covered these sections of the book. And uh, so we're in good shape to move. Uh, we're going to move through this section and kind of into 40 today. And then next week we'll cover this last section of, uh, of the book here. So uh, here's, so we kind of have seen the basic idea then. God's going to bring a judgment on Israel's sin and on the nation's sin. And uh, we're going to start off in these chapters right here. And you remember the idea that uh, is chronology the most important uh, factor in how the book has been arranged and put together? Have you guys noticed that so far? So, so Isaiah, it's much more like looking at a, a painting or at a kaleidoscope, where there's a core set of themes laid out, like what we have here, and then each one is played over and over again, but with new developments, like the flower pot that I drew up here last week. And with each cycling or recycling of a theme, 
the theme gets a little more specific and developed as it, as it goes on. So we're going to land in a couple chapters here uh, to see how all of these themes, even the ones that we're just reading right here, have, uh, are going to play themselves out. So you guys ready for action? We'll kind of dive in and start reading and then uh, see, see what happens. So uh, this block that we're looking at, this kind of section we're turning to, uh, is a big block in chapters 28 through 35. And you'll remember here in these chapters last week, you know, we're talking about the downfall of Babylon, but also about like the Messiah's reign and the new creation. And it was set out in this kind of broad scope again. It's like, well, are we talking about the end of the world? Are we talking about the downfall of Babylon and the Messiah? All of these images coming at us. 28 through 35, as we're going to see, the story set us. It's almost like we kind of do a little time warp back into the setting of these chapters right here. Um, and the key, so just to put this on the historical timeline, the key events of these chapters are set uh, right here in this time period. Remember Isaiah, he's standing right here. The northern kingdom is about to be taken out by what big bad empire? Assyria. Assyria. Mm-hmm. And on the horizon is another big bad empire who's going to take out Assyria after that. And then take out uh, the people of Judah and so on in, uh, down here. And that's the nation of Babylon. And so Isaiah's right in between these time periods here. And um, we'll just we'll dive in and, and see, see what emerges. You have your reading poetry hats on? Yeah? Anybody? Okay. This is, this is as dense of poetry as Isaiah ever wrote right here, so we're just going in. Woe to that Greek. Oh, yes, sorry, sorry. It's <laughs> all preparatory. It's a total fake out there. So what, uh, what arranges most of the poems in these sections, look at the beginning, first word of uh, chapter 28. Woe, first uh, word of chapter 29. First word of chapter 30. Uh-huh. First word of chapter 31. Yeah, so all, for all of these, uh, the word is... In Hebrew, the word is... Uh, hoy. But then in 32, what's the first word you have there? See? Anybody? See? Or look? Yeah. So look uh, in Hebrew is pain. <laughs> and then chapter 33. Whoa. So what we have here uh, in 28 to 33 are six poems that begin with hoy, and then one of them begins with pain. It's a little play on it because the content of that poem is a little different. Um, so that's the first main section. These are called the woes, the woes of Isaiah that he's going to announce on Israel. So that's, whoever's put this section together, that's why they've organized all this material right here as the woe poems. Okay, sorry, back to chapter 28, verse, uh, verse 1. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. Woe to the fading flower 
of his glorious beauty. Okay. So Isaiah is pronouncing a woe on somebody. There's not too many people who it could be. Who is he likely to be pronouncing a woe upon? Yes, the people of Israel. And so he, he says, specifically, he names uh, a significant tribe in Israel in the first line here, Ephraim. So this is one of those tricky things about Isaiah's language. We talked about it last week. When Israel uh, has a civil war and they split into two, northern Israel uh, is often called by the name Ephraim, because Ephraim was the biggest, one of the largest of the 12 tribes in the north. So he's pronouncing a woe on the north. Why would that be? Well, because they've sinned and disaster's coming. Woe to that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards. Woe to the fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on a head of a fertile valley. To that city, the pride of those who are laid low by wine. So drunkenness is a huge theme in the chapter. So... Um, if you're trying to like paint a little mental picture here, he's pronouncing a woe on somebody. What's emerging in your imagination here? What's that? They're alcoholics. They're alcoholics, and um, and so the picture is drinking. That's going to portray the chapter. What are they wearing? These these people, these drunkards. This may not translate into English then. So when we use the word wreath, what do you what does what do we think of in English? Wreath. Something you hang on your door, I guess, right? Yeah, so wreath, we're talking about a crown here. So the idea is that uh, they've Israel is like uh, northern Israel is like people wearing little daisy chain crowns, little flower like a little crown made out of flowers. And uh, I don't know. We just made a daisy chain to put on Roman's head the other day. It was delightful on my little son's head, you know. So I guess, you know, we still kind of do this thing. So the idea is uh, that they have this cr uh, crown made out of flowers, and they're having a party, right? And so, like, festival-type clothing, crown of flowers, and so on. And then they're just totally getting hammered at this party, the leaders of Israel, as we're going to see. And so uh, he pronounces a woe on their little flower crown and said, your flowers are actually going to wilt and fade. That's what's going to happen. Look, verse 2. The Lord has someone who is powerful and strong, like a hailstorm, like a destructive wind, like a driving rain, like a flooding downpour. And he's going to throw this storm. Yahweh, he's depicted as like he's in charge of the weather. He's going to throw, uh, throw it forcefully to the ground. That wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards is going to be trampled underfoot. And the fading flower of his glorious beauty that's set on the head of a fertile valley, it'll be like a ripe fig before the harvest. And as soon as someone sees it and takes it into his hand, he pops it into his mouth and swallows it. So this, this is ancient poetry. How many are you like, this is so weird? Right? It's kind of a weird little poem. Yeah, totally. So, but there you go, it's ancient poem, you got to get into the storyline here. So it's like a bunch of people drinking at a party, wearing these festival crowns made out of flowers, and then he says, actually, your flowers are going to fade, I'm going to bring a storm and throw it your direction, the flower crown's going to fall on the ground and get trampled, 
and then, and then all of a sudden you're like a fig hanging on a tree and someone's going to eat you. That's the idea here. So I mean, this is typical Isaiah. We've come to expect. The metaphors just come spilling, stumbling over one another. And it's meant to be read slowly, meditatively, unpack, unpack the metaphors. So just think, the basic storyline of here is still the same. Uh, Israel sinned and judgment's coming. That's kind of the big picture here. All right. Verse 5. But in that day, in what day? Yeah, in, in the day of judgment. And remember, we've come across this phrase in Isaiah often before, where he's talking about this day, there's going to be a day of judgment coming. Let's do it here. And then uh, on the other side of judgment is going to come, typically, salvation. In that day, Yahweh Almighty, he will be a glorious crown and a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back battles at the gate. So there's going to be uh, a judgment coming. Yahweh has someone in store who's going to bring judgment on Israel. But then, somehow, just all of a sudden, in that day, it's not that they're going to have parties and wear crowns themselves. Who is going to be Israel's crown and joy after the judgment? What's he say in verse 5? Yahweh. Yahweh himself. So it's this replacement of their partying flower crowns with Yahweh himself is going to become your crown. Why, who's A crown for whom? What's he say here? Very important. A remnant. A remnant. Is this bringing any echoes of previous weeks here? So remember, remember Isaiah chapter 6. This was a very kind of key chapter. Um, Israel's like a tree, and God's going to cut Israel down. And then it's like the tree is a little remnant, and then God's going to burn the tree. And then what's going to grow up out of the tree? A little shoot. A little, he call it the seed, the holy seed. A little remnant is going to grow up out of it. Um, in Ch Isaiah chapter 1, there's going to be a judgment on Israel. Who is going to survive out the other side? The repentant, the remnant, and so on. So God's going to bring judgment, and there's going to be a remnant who comes out the other side, and Yahweh will be their, uh, their crown. He will be a spirit of judgment or justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back to battle at the gate. So the chapter just begins. Judgment's coming, but salvation out the other side in these very kind of rich, poetic, poetic images. Okay, verse 7. Remember, this is like a kaleidoscope. All these images coming at you here. Let's go back and think about these leaders uh, who have abandoned their responsibility to Israel because they're having all these drinking parties. Hmm? So these also stagger from wine, and they reel from beer, Priests and prophets, which are kind of two, one, two of the main categories of leaders among the people of Israel. They stagger from beer, they are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when they are seeing visions. Who sees visions? The prophets. 
they stumble when they're rendering decisions. Who renders decisions? The priests. The priests. So what's what are they? The priests and the prophets, the people who lead lead Israel, they've abandoned their their responsibilities as leaders of God's people. So this is a very common theme in the prophets of how they accuse Israel and the nations of sinning. The leaders have given up their responsibilities. And they're having these drinking parties. And then verse 8 just goes for it. So they're supposed to be coming together to meet and to plan how to lead and guide God's people. And what are they actually doing? They're having these drinking parties and all of the tables are covered with vomit. There is not one spot that does not have filth. This is very, just totally a gross image here. A bunch of drunk, hung, hungover people who have abandoned their posts. Okay. Okay, it gets really interesting. So there's a, a quotation here. It's sort of like in the, in the poem, uh, Isaiah quotes these leaders. So you can picture, essentially, Isaiah, he comes, he himself was a significant leader. The, you know, kings would come to him looking for counsel and so on. So you can picture him going into the capital in Jerusalem that one day, announcing his message. Like, we're screwed up, we've totally sinned, we've abandoned, we need to change course, we need to repent, we need to turn to Yahweh. And he comes on the scene here, and everybody's drunk, and no one's paying attention to him. That's the scene. And so, they're going to mock him. He's going to quote their, their mockery of him. Who is it, this Isaiah guy? Who does he think he's trying to teach? To whom does he think he's explaining his message here? Are we children just weaned from milk? Are we like those just taken from the breast? <laughs> That's the idea. And think of a room of just people who are just hammered. What are they acting like? Children. <laughs> children. <laughs> That's the idea. So it's like, we don't need any help from this guy, Isaiah. You know, that's kind of the idea. And he's just like, well, who, does this, who are these people? They're drunk. They're like irresponsible little children. They've abandoned their responsibilities. All right. And then uh, this is the Israel's leaders repeating Isaiah's message back to him. Now, verse 10. This is one of the most puzzling verses in the whole Bible, I think. So, the end, this is the New International Translation. reads, uh, for, for it says, Do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. How many of you have that in your translation? Okay, good. Some of us. What else? What do others have? Order on order, line on line. Order on order, line on line. Yeah, precept and precept, the line, okay. Uh-huh. Isn't this wonderful? What's that? Law after line, line after line. Anybody else? Anything else different? Yes. Yes, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, so the, the rabbit hole is a little deep here. But uh, I, this is totally fascinating. And it ends, the rabbit hole comes out in 1 Corinthians 14 in what Paul says about speaking in tongues. <laughs> so you guys ready? Want to dive? Take a dive here? Yep. Okay, all right. So here's, uh, here's what uh, Isaiah, is there, does anyone of you have footnotes? I have a footnote in my NIV that says what the Hebrew is. Yeah. And then says, well, we think this is what this means. So what do you if you have a footnote, what does it say? Yes. 
Say that again? Imitating the babbling of a child. Yeah. So here's this is what uh, this is the phrase right here. Sav Litsav Kavlakav Zersham Zersham. So the problem is that um, most of these words aren't really Hebrew words. <laughs> they look like Hebrew words. Um, so the word sav uh, is a word that kind of looks like the word for command. The word kav is a word that kind of looks like the word for line, like a measuring line. And ze'er means a little bit, and sham means there. So command for command, line for line, little bit there, little bit there, is like the best translation that anybody can come up with. But you look at, you look at it, and what it really seems like is babbling, mumble, mumble-jumbling. Now, just think about the scene. Who is Isaiah describing here? What, what's the scene that he's describing? Right? A bunch of drunk people uh, who are, who, you know, just, I mean, they're out of control. They're acting like little children. So the question is, is this uh, Isaiah making fun of their drunk babbling, or is this the leaders making fun of Isaiah, saying he's like a babbler? Or is, is this actually meant to be some sort of coherent sentence that means they think Isaiah is some legalist who just comes at them always speaking judgment and accusation, line on line, command upon command, and so on. Um, and those are essentially the three possibilities of what this text means. And there you go. <laughs> you know, take, take your pick. Um, so, but uh, let's keep let's keep going here. So, somebody's babbling here. Uh, verse eleven. All right then, very well. If Israel's people are going to be drunk and babblers, then with foreign lips and with strange tongues, God is going to come speak to His people. Okay, so. The picture here is that uh, Israel's leaders have abandoned their post. They've become like drunk, drunk babblers. Let's take that interpretation for the moment. And so God says, all right, uh, you enjoy hearing the sounds of babbling in your parties. Then, uh, yeah, I'm going to come uh, bring some babblers to you. What could, be, what could he be describing here? God bringing or coming to speak with Another language. For, oh, who would come, who would march into Israel speaking a foreign language? Yeah, other nations who are going to come attack and wipe out and bring judgment. So this is, a, this is sarcasm here in, in the Bible. I don't know how you feel about sarcasm. But God, so they have the scene of these drunk babblers and God says, all right, you want to abandon your posts and go on having these drinking parties instead of actually leading the people then I'll give you babbling, all right, you know. It's sort of that thing of, you know, what my dad used to sometimes say to me, like, you know, if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. You know, it's, a, it's like that kind of line. Here, he's going to come and bring uh, foreign, foreign lips and strange tongues to his people. These are people to whom God said, this is the, where, this is the resting place. Let the weary rest. And this is, is the place of repose, 
Isaiah's been coming to the people saying, turn to Yahweh, you will find rest and salvation in Yahweh. But what was their response? They would not listen. So here's the word of the Lord to them then. <laughs> and you actually know the Hebrew now. What is it? Tzav l'tzav, kav l'kav, z'ersham, z'ersham. And what's going to happen when this babbling of foreign peoples comes marching into Israel? They're going to fall, go and fall backward to be injured and snared and captured. So, so this is a complex passage, isn't it? <laughs> it's very bizarre. Um, so, but this, this seems to be uh, the, the idea here. He's describing this drunken party. And either the people or Isaiah's are seen as babblers, and so God's going to bring the foreign tongue, foreign speaking nations to come uh, speak their babbling as they conquer and take over uh, the people of Israel. Now here's what's interesting. So put, put your thumb here and go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14. <clears throat> Okay, so in a very different discussion, in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about uh, how the Corinthians are misusing the experience of uh, praying in unknown languages in the worship gathering, which makes you immediately think of Isaiah 28, right? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, how do these two go together here? And essentially the whole point is that people were having these kind of hyper-ecstatic spiritual experiences, but in the large gathering of the Corinthians, and it's become a total distraction. And it's not helpful to everybody who's gathered there because you can't understand what people are saying. And the point of gathering is that we actually encourage each other so by understanding what, what we're saying. And so, uh, verse 13 he says, for this reason, uh, the person who speaks in a tongue, they should pray that they can interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, I'm having a great time, right? My spirit's praying, but my mind is, is unfruitful. My mind isn't filtering and turning what I'm saying into something that another person could understand. So what should I do? Well, I should pray with my spirit, yes, but I should also pray with my mind. I want to sing with my spirit, but I also want to sing with my mind. If you're praising God with your spirit, how can someone who finds himself among those who don't understand, how can someone say amen to your thanksgiving? They can't even understand what you're saying. You kind of see the point of what he's getting at here. You may be giving thanks, but the other person isn't built up or edified because they can't understand what the heck you're saying. And this is, what, this is great, what Paul says. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, in the gathering... I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You guys, stop thinking like children. Children. Think Isaiah 28. Stop being like children. What do children do? They babble. Stop being like children. Thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants. But in your thinking, grow up. In the law, it is written... And lo and behold, what do we find? Through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. 
And then Paul says this. He says, tongues then are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone's speaking in tongues, some of you uh, and some of you who don't understand or some unbelievers come in, won't they say, these people are out of their mind? But if an unbeliever, someone who doesn't understand, comes in while someone's prophesying, speaking normal language, they'll be convicted uh, that they're sinners, they'll be judged by all the secrets of their heart laid bare, and they will fall down in worship, exclaiming, God is really among you. Okay, this is such a, this is such a great, fascinating passage here. But So this, this seems to be the idea here, is that when, when tongues are being uh, spoken in the gathering, it makes people who should feel like insiders, here we are as the family of Jesus together, and I'll, when someone does that, it makes me feel like an outsider to God's people. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 28. So in Isaiah 28, who is it that's babbling here, speaking the strange tongues? It's, it's going to be the Assyrians, like the enemies of God, outsiders to the covenant people. And so it seems like what Paul is saying here, he's, he's alluding to this babbling, and it's the passage that comes to his mind when he thinks about speaking in tongues, because it actually has this, this babbling component to it. And he says, in Isaiah, remember Isaiah 28, the people who were babbling were either the drunkards, who were acting like kids, or the foreigners who were outsiders to God's people. And so he says, when, uh, when people come in, uh, they should be able to understand what's being said and be convicted and let the Holy Spirit work through words that they can understand. Speaking in tongues makes people feel isolated and outsiders. So anyway, I just to me this is so interesting that Paul quotes this passage that has this babbling here, and he uses it to, uh, to weave together his discussion about speaking, speaking in tongues. Okay, thoughts or questions about what, what he's doing here? Observations? How are you guys doing? Great. Well, I think this is a cool passage. <laughs> I'm guessing, I'm hoping you do too. Okay. Uh, let's, uh, let's keep going here. Isaiah chapter 28. Therefore, this is verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem. You, you have this boast saying, we have entered into a covenant with death, with the grave we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us, for we have, we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. So there's this idea that the leaders of Jerusalem are saying, yes, God may be, he may be behind bringing Assyria to us, but we have... Uh, They've made some sort of agreement that they think is going to help them. And it's an agreement with, what does Isaiah say here? Yeah, with death. So this is, a, this is just another interesting thing here. So in Hebrew, the word death is the word uh, uh, mot. However, uh, there is a, a Canaanite god who goes by the name of Mot. 
And so it seems like Isaiah is making a bit of a wordplay here, that uh, they are turning to other gods or other nations for help, but in reality, they're making a covenant with not a god, but with death. So this is a this is called a wordplay in Hebrew <laughs> that doesn't come across in English very well. Um, but this is the idea here, that uh, what they are turning to for help is actually going to turn out to their death. Verse 16. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who trusts will never be dismayed. Is this a familiar familiar line to anybody? A stone in Zion, one who trusts in it. So again, this is a different way. If, uh, if one of Isaiah's images is that uh, he's going to cut down Israel and that uh, the little shoot is going to pop up from the line of David, he here has a different image, the image of a building. So if he's going to send a storm and, and tear down Jerusalem, he's going to lay a new foundation. Do you see this here in verse 16? He's going to lay a new foundation. And what's going to be the cornerstone at the center of this foundation? It's going to be this tested stone uh, that he's going to lay in Zion. So just you have to think here, where did David set up his kingdom? And what did David call the city of Jerusalem when he established it as his capital? He reigned in Jerusalem, and he called it Zion. And so this is the same idea again. These leaders have abandoned their posts, but God's going to rebuild a new city with uh, a sure tested stone uh, that's going to be the foundation of his new, of his new work. Um, okay, put your thumb right here. Go to First uh, Peter with me. First uh, Peter chapter two. Uh, so he says, he just begins here, Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn, hmm? Babies. Whoa, babies keep coming up here. Children, babies, right? So, but here, uh, it's good to be babies because you're craving uh, pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone that has been rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are like living stones being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. What kind of house does the priesthood live in? You came across this in second century. A temple here. You're being built into a spiritual temple. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, and lo and behold, what does he quote? Yeah, Isaiah chapter 28. He quotes the words that we just, we just uh, quoted here. So in other words, Peter sees in Isaiah 28 a promise that God is going to build a new uh, foundation and a new house of his people. That's going to be based on this, this stone uh, connected to David and his reign and his kingdom, sort of like a new. And it's very clear 
who does Peter see as that stone who's the foundation of this new building? Yeah, he never actually says it here. He just calls him not Jesus. What does he call Jesus in verse 4? You come to, to whom? To the, yeah, the living stone. Such a cool metaphor. So uh, he reads Isaiah 28, and he sees this new future of this new building, and that Jesus is the stone, and that the building being built around Jesus is actually not stones at all. It's people. Right? And that's what he says right here. And you also are like living stones, and you're being built. The, the, the community of people coming around Jesus as the Messiah is the fulfillment of this remnant who's going to come out the other side of judgment and be this new building that God builds uh, after the judgment of God's people. Is this, uh, do you see a connection with this when Peter says, upon this rock, I build my church? Yeah. Is that the fact that people can often use that to justify Peter being in the first pulpit or whatever else? Yep. Um, yeah. Instead of actually the statement that, that uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's that passage is itself a whole rabbit hole that goes lots of different directions. But at least to say, I think there is a, a piece of it that's relevant there. The image of Jesus as a rock upon which a new house is built is a really common Old Testament theme. It's right here in Isaiah 28. And the New Testament authors just go nuts with it. They just develop the image in a lot of different ways. And Jesus used it, used it too. Yeah, building your house on the rock and not the sand and so on. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So all this to say, what I'm trying to do is read a very complex passage of Isaiah and like help us understand it. But two, to show us how these passages were extremely important to Jesus and the New Testament authors because they saw in Isaiah's metaphors, have the metaphors of Isaiah that just stumble and pour off the page actually become the framework for a lot of very common ideas that you and I think about as Christians that are in the New Testament. But they're all rooted in Isaiah's metaphors, in passages that are really difficult to, to understand sometimes. But, uh, so there's, you know, when we think about the, the church as like the temple, or Jesus as the foundation of the temple, uh, these are all rooted in very ancient poetic images from, uh, from the prophecies of Isaiah. That's, that's what I'm trying to accomplish by doing this right now. So I'm showing my cards. No. So, and yeah. Right. Yes, precisely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Corner, a foundation stone. Yeah, that's right. So these are all ways of uh, getting at this basic that the salvation is going to uh, come with the Messiah. And so different metaphors might be a sh uh, shoot from a stump, stimp from a stump, or foundation stone of a, of a building. So different ways of thinking about this new thing that God is going to do on the other side of judgment when the, when the Messiah comes and brings restoration. Other thoughts? Okay. Um, so 
basically, we touched down in Isaiah 28 as kind of like a, like a sampling of what these chapters are about. So what, as you read in these chapters, you're going to, it's going to be an image of judgment, an image of salvation, an image about the nations coming to bring judgment, and uh, some sort of strange poetry. Oh, like, go to, uh, this is one of my favorite ones. Go to chapter 32 with me. <clears throat> so, uh, in chapter 32, he has this uh, diatribe against the rich, complacent women, most likely the lives, the wives of all of these drunk leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, so in 32, verse 9, he says, You women who are complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. In little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The great harvest will fail. The harvest of fruit will not come. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your clothes and put on sackcloth around your waist. So the sackcloth is like burlap, scratchy, itchy. You put it on as a sign of, uh, of mourning, of sadness, of grief, and repentance, and so on. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields and the fruitful line, vines for the land of my people, a land that's now overgrown with thorns and briars. Mourn for all the houses of merriment. <laughs> Good English word, merriment. For this city of revelry, the fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland, the delight of donkeys, and a pasture of flocks. So this is like one man's trash, another man's treasure. So an uh, overthrown city is the delight of donkeys. Because <laughs> it's a whole place for donkeys to go live and explore and kick around and so on. That's the idea. So good, good news, bad news, what we just read. Bad news. And then watch, you just it's like a huge jolt here. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And then the desert, right, this huge desolation after the judgment, the desert is going to become like what again? A fertile field. And the fertile field is going to become like a forest. And justice the very thing that was missing in Israel, it's going to dwell in, in the desert, and righteousness is going to live in the fertile field. And the fruit of righteousness will be, what's the Hebrew word? Shalom. And the effect of the righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. And even though hail might flatten the forest and the city, leveled completely. How blessed will you be sowing your seed by every stream and letting your oxen and donkeys range free? So did you catch, this is, again, this is just typical of Isaiah's imagery. It's uh, God's going to bring judgment on Israel. It's going to bring a wasteland. But then all of a sudden there's going to be a huge fertile forest and land where you can dwell securely in your cities. And what's the key in verse 15? Not the Messiah coming, but what? Look at verse 15. Yeah, the Spirit coming. Now remember, put your thumb here, remember from chapter 11, when the Messiah comes, who is the Messiah going to be empowered by? 
Yeah, this was one of the key images of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 11. The shoot is going to come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on this king coming from the line of David. Spirit of wisdom, power, and understanding, and so on. So this is, again, this is another one of these passages in Isaiah where the the coming of the era of salvation is signified by the coming of the Messiah, or here it's by the coming of God's Spirit to bring new life and new creation after uh, the judgment and the desolation. So this is kind of typical of this whole whole section here. So we've just touched down in a few passages. But it's again, it's like a kaleidoscope rehashing the themes uh, that we're already kind of working with up to the book this time. Uh, this far. Thoughts? Questions? Sweet. How are you guys doing? All right, great. Um, okay. So, uh, do you want to just hit it till 12? We've gone an hour already. You want to just keep powering? Okay, all right, let's go for it. If you need to go to the bathroom, let it go, go right ahead. Okay. So here's, uh, here's essentially what, what happens here. Um, when this section comes to a close, uh, we have some big... Uh, we have This is our basic storyline. Israel uh, and the nations, they've sinned. God's going to bring judgment. And in this, say like Isaiah 28, the judgment was going to take the form of what nation coming, coming through. <coughs> is going to be the nation of Assyria, and what Isaiah is referencing in the timeline here is this. But then after this event takes place here, um, so, pause right there. So as we saw, like last week, and after the coming of Assyria, like in chapter 11, uh, after Assyria comes, then we have all these images of salvation. And so you read these first chapters of Isaiah and you say, oh, I guess the Messiah was supposed to come after Assyria came through the land. Um, and, but did that happen? No, it didn't happen because another big bad empire came along uh, and took out Assyria and Judah. And that's the nation in the second disaster here. And that's the nation of Babylon. And so uh, what... There's a section put right here of story. It's actually of narrative. It's not actually poetry at all. And it's a story about how uh, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, was rescued from this judgment that was brought uh, upon Assyria. So in your handout that I gave you for today, uh, this is on section of Isaiah chapter 36 through uh, 39. And actually, it'll probably be most helpful to turn first to uh, Isaiah 39 to get the big picture of what's going on here. We'll just kind of dive in here. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, the king of 
Babylon, they sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and of his recovery. That's told in chapter 38. We'll talk about that in a second. So the last time you heard about Babylon in the book of Isaiah was chapters 13 and 14. And if you were here last week, we read these chapters, and is Babylon depicted as like a good guy there that you want to have over for dinner, you know, and like make friends with. They're a horrible empire. They're going to bring desolation to, to huge parts of the ancient Near East, wipe out people groups and so on. Uh, but here they come, want to make friends with one of the kings of Judah. Verse 2. So Hezekiah received the envoys gladly. And he showed them everything that was in his storehouses, like all the silver, all the gold, all the spices, all the fine oil, his entire armory, like all his weapons and stuff, and everything found among his treasures. Good idea, bad idea? Yeah, yeah, bad idea. Really bad idea. In fact, there was nothing in his palace and in all his kingdom that Hezekiah didn't show them. So Isaiah, he went to King Hezekiah, and he said, hmm... You know, who are those guys? What did those men say? And where did they come from? Oh, they're from a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, well, what did they see in your palace? Oh, they saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. In fact, there's nothing among my treasures I didn't show them. You can see he's kind of like a little dog or whatever. He's like, he's like happy. I'm like, yeah, see, isn't this great? Like, uh, look, I showed them everything. Showed them, isn't this great? Look at what a powerful king I am. I can host other kingdoms and show them what, what great power and riches I have. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of Yahweh Almighty. The time will come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up to this day will be carried off to, to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And even some of your descendants your own flesh and blood who will be born to you are going to be taken away and they will become eunuchs. In other words, they'll be emasculated and then made to become servants, serving where? In the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah replied, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good because he thought, well, at least there's going to be shalom and security in my lifetime. <laughs> and you're like, what on earth? So, what a jerk, right? So, this is a, this is a strange story right here. Um, because, essentially, what's happened, you saw, okay, the judgment of Assyria was going to come, uh, totally take out Israel and Judah, and then the Messiah would come afterwards. And what happens is not that. The picture gets more complex. Well, so you may, I'm going to actually erase here and uh, recall a, a drawing that we used last week. So you remember the, the mountain range imagery that, we, that I used last week. So here's Isaiah, got his good Bible character beard. Um, and he was uh, looking at the complex mountain range. And on the nearest uh, horizon, or the nearest foothill, was uh, Israel, um, and they were allied with a nation up in the north. Remember the name of that nation, chapter 7? Yep, the nation of Aram. 
and uh, they were going to attack the city of Jerusalem. And uh, Isaiah saw that, nope, that's not going to happen, because that would mean God would abandon his promises to protect people in Jerusalem. And so who's going, the big bad nation's going to come and take out these two nations right here? This is the nation of Assyria. And while they're at it, <laughs> they're also uh, going to take out most of Israel, too. In the way, way, like, background here, Sorry, this is a ridiculous mountain. <laughs> After the judgment, right, we have the Messiah, we have uh, the Spirit, the coming of the Spirit in a new way, Isaiah 32. We have the new creation from Isaiah 11. You know, the little kid can put their hands in a cobra's hole and won't get hurt. That was his poetic. So this was the idea here. But as the book developed, we saw that there actually is going to be uh, another mountain in between Assyria and the Messiah and the new creation. And that big bad nation is the nation of Babylon coming through. And then, actually, he saw that there would be another nation after that. It's the nation of... Yeah, it's in Isaiah here. This will play a key role later on. The nation of Persia, or the Medes. And, uh, and this is all Isaiah can see uh, from his historical vantage point, and he dies. But uh, who's going to come after Persia? You pick up the book of Daniel, <laughs> and who's going to come after Persia, right? Well, Greece. And then who's going to come after Greece? Rome. And then who's going to come after Rome? And so on and on the story seems to go. The, the, the human rebellious kingdoms rumbling on, rumbling on. And the promise of the Messiah keeps getting clarified in terms of where, where it's coming. And so this is essentially what's happening right here, is that Isaiah is seeing, uh, through Hezekiah's sin and foolishness, that Assyria coming to bring judgment actually didn't deal with the, the sin and foolishness, at least of this leader right here, of uh, the king Hezekiah. And so there would be another judgment laying beyond uh, the, the coming of Assyria. And that's... Uh, that's the nation of Babylon. And so there you go. Uh, this is the, the exile of Babylon being foretold here. Turn the page, or whatever, to Isaiah chapter 40. <clears throat> and out of the gates here, uh, we just hear this call. Famous lines if you listen to Handel's Messiah uh, around Christmas time. Anybody? Fans of Handel's Messiah around the holidays? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Great. Friedrich Handel. It was his, it was his uh, theology of all the messianic passages in the Bible put into uh, put to music. You know, I just learned about this recently. He didn't actually write the, uh, the music. Handel didn't. Um, oh, wait, no, excuse me. He wrote, excuse me. He wrote the music. It was someone else who assembled uh, the lyrics and all the biblical passages. And actually, it was first uh, performed not for religious purposes at all. He wrote it uh, to be actually played uh, in the week before Easter, because all of it leads up to Isaiah 53 and about the cross and atonement. But uh, about after his death, it became much more popular during Christmas time than during Easter. 
So what he meant to be like a passion story of Jesus' passion became a Christmas story. Anyway, that's random. Okay. So this, this is how uh, Handel's Messiah begins. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. That she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Okay, let's just stop for a second here. We'll just ask a few questions. So, whatever has happened, uh, we'll just kind of tease it out here. Does it seem like something bad has happened? Yes, something bad has happened. But is that bad thing happening? Is it? It's not the future, is it? It's in the past. So when Isaiah was standing here looking out, and he's talking to these people in his horizon, and he's saying, judgment is coming. God's going to bring judgment for Israel's, for our sin, and our abandoning, our leadership responsibilities, and so on. But the voice speaking in chapter 40 comes along, and does it, does it sound the same? Does it saying, sin is going to be paid for, and hard service is going to have to be completed? No, it's like it's standing on the other side of judgment, looking backwards and saying, it's over now. It's over. The judgment has come, and uh, we've, our, sins have been, our sins have been dealt with and taken away and paid for. So this is the big jump that happens right here uh, at, Isaiah, at Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, it's almost like we can, uh, we can draw a line here. Say, Isaiah 40, if uh, Isaiah saw judgment on the horizon, then what was going to follow judgment? Uh, salvation. <laughs> this stuff, this good stuff right here. Uh, salvation. And so uh, the voice speaking in Isaiah chapter 40 doesn't seem to be located here anymore. Before the judgment, the voice seems to assume that the judgment is now past and that uh, now is going to be the time of comfort leading up to salvation. Does that make sense? What's happening here? So it's almost like the voice, whoever's talking here, has jumped for the exile is now past. So the exile was future. Isaiah said, Babylon's going to come and you're going to be taken out by Babylon. And it just in the well, you may not even, I don't even have to turn a page to get to Isaiah 40, right? It's all, Isaiah 39 to 40 is on the same page. But then there's this huge jump here that all of a sudden the judgment's passed, and now we're announcing that the era and the time of salvation is it's, it's at hand, and we can be comforted because of that. Does that make sense? So there's, this, there's a seismic shift here between Isaiah 1 through 39 and Isaiah 40 and following. The vantage point of the one speaking to us has shifted. It's like exile's over now. Okay, so there's a few things going on here. If you uh, put your thumb here between Isaiah 39 and 40, go back to the first sentence of the book of Isaiah. This is also really interesting. <clears throat> so the first sentence of Isaiah tells us the basic time frame of when Isaiah was around and when he was talking and saying all of his stuff. So we're told the vision of Judah 
in Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of four kings. What are the four kings? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Now there were stories about Isaiah working with two of these kings. Remember chapter 7, the Emmanuel passage. It was about Ahaz and his treachery, right? And, uh, and then we have a story here about Hezekiah. So the implication also is that Isaiah um, was working and living during the reigns of these kings. Isaiah 39 comes along and says uh, that Babylon's going to come and take out Hezekiah, and the implication is that he's going to die. And so 39 almost leaves you with a hanging question then. So, well, Isaiah's ministry ended at the period of Hezekiah. Hezekiah seems to be, or his, his death and doom is implicated by chapter 39. And so it just raises a question uh, for chapter 40. Who on earth is talking to me right now? That's essentially, who is, who's talking to me in chapter 40? Because I thought Isaiah was going to pass after Hezekiah passed off the scene too. And the speaking voice is now, literally, has jumped forward. Let's get out our little history timeline now. So this, in chapter 39, this is what Isaiah is talking about. Babylon uh, came knocking on Jerusalem's door a number of times, but came with a big hammer and burned the city to the ground and the temple in 586. And uh, so this is what... Uh, this is what I, the destruction that Isaiah is talking about in 39. And it wasn't until almost 50 years, 50, 60 years after that, that uh, the people start coming back from exile. And so whatever has happened, it's sort of like the speaking voice has just time warped forward, like many, many decades uh, into the future. And so this has been just a huge puzzle throughout all of the history of the book of Isaiah. Who's talking to me when I turn the page to Isaiah chapter 40? Um, and so this is essentially, this is all I'm going to say about, uh, this is where we're going to spend a few minutes talking about the authorship of, of the book of Isaiah. So who's talking to me now? That the, it seems like the, the voice is, is speaking. Again, put your thumb, well, I don't know what page you're on now, but... Uh, Go to chapter 8 with me. We talked about Isaiah 8. But it's, uh, we're going to recall it again here. <clears throat> so Isaiah uh, 8, uh, verse 11. The Lord spoke to me, this is Isaiah speaking, spoke to me with a strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, don't call a conspiracy what every, all these people call a conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you shall fear. He is the one you shall dread. And to you, Isaiah, he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, north and south, He's going to be a, interesting, a stone, but in this case, not a good stone. A stone that's going to cause people to trip over it, and a rock that's going to make them fall. For the people of Jerusalem, he's going to become a trap and a snare. They're going to stumble, fall, be broken, snared, captured. Okay, 
So essentially, Isaiah's uh, here. He's been proclaiming his message. No one's, Ahaz has rejected him. Everyone's rejecting him. And so Isaiah's being encouraged here. Don't follow the way of this people. They've, they're going their own way. They're headed towards destruction. So, and God says to Isaiah, you just put your focus on me and regard me as holy and just follow my word. That's essentially what's happening here. Isaiah's like the religious minority, persecuted religious minority. And so verses 16 and 17, they're super key here. This is like uh, Isaiah speaking here, presumably. And he says, bind up the testimony and seal up the law among whom? Among my disciples. So this is Isaiah uh, taking his prophecies, his testimonies, his teaching, and he's, roll, he's rolling it all up into a scroll, and he's sealing it. And what's he going to do? He's going to seal it up, and then what's he say? Verse 17. And I'm going to wait. Right? I'm going to wait for the Lord, who, for this moment, he's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I'm going to put my trust in him. So Isaiah saw this whole, this whole thing playing out here. And the people of Israel reject him because he's pronouncing judgment. They, you know, they uh, were too busy drinking and having parties. <laughs> and so he says, they've rejected me. The Lord says, let them go their way. And Isaiah seals up his prophecies and he hands them over to his disciples, he says. Who's that? <laughs> Who are Isaiah's disciples? And he doesn't say anywhere. Uh, was presumably he had a circle around him uh, who listened to his teaching and listened to his prophecies, and so he passed over his scroll to them. And then he waits. He waits. Because now is the period where God is hiding his face from Israel because of their sin, and so they're going to go to judgment. But if he's waiting, what's he waiting for? It doesn't say, but just think about it here. He's, he's waiting for something. On the other side of judgment, he's, he knew that if God was going to be faithful to Abraham and to David, that he would, he would send the Messiah. That he would bring salvation on the other side of judgment. And so what's he waiting for here? He's going to seal up the scroll, hand it off to his disciples, and wait for the judgment to pass. And so, whoever's speaking to us in Isaiah 40, one of the big themes in these chapters in 40 and following is going to be, we don't have to wait anymore. Uh, the time of waiting is over. The judgment is past, and the time of the realization of these promises through Isaiah are, uh, are here. So, there's essentially uh, two views about uh, who's talking here. So, let's, here, I'm going to draw a little scroll. That an okay scroll? Yeah. Okay. But it has a little it has a little seal on it, right? It seals up prophecies. So, um, one one view of the authorship of the book of Isaiah is that uh, all of the rest of the book it's still Isaiah speaking, but it's it's as if he's um, in a vision or in some sort of spiritual visionary experience that he has looked like time warp. And so it's as if he's standing here now. 
but he's opening a scroll. Oh man, I don't know how to draw an open scroll. Actually, here I do. Yeah, sure. He's opened up the scroll. But uh, he's physically, you know, sitting in his house in Jerusalem in the mid-700s, you know, uh, B.C. Uh, but he's having this experience that's taking him, you know, a hundred and some odd years into the future after the exile's over. So that's been, uh, that's been a, common, a common view. Um, another major view has been taking the cue of these verses right here in chapter 8. And that Isaiah passed his scroll off to uh, his disciples. So I'm going to call this <laughs> a little group. And they have much shorter beards. They just have stubble. Because they're young disciples. And he passes the scroll off to them. And his disciples uh, treasure the prophecies of Isaiah and they wait. And they wait, and they wait. And then, uh, in the time after Babylon comes, the disciples have become mature, so now they have beards. And then they are the ones who reopen the prophecies of Isaiah, but then also uh, add new material to the book that uh, fleshes out these promises of salvation even, even more. Um, so these are essentially the kind of the two views on the author, authorship of Isaiah. Either he time warped, or he passed the scroll off to his disciples, and uh, they are the one who are actually responsible for the shape of the book as we have it. And that his disciples were also the prophets that anonymous, anonymously uh, put new prophecies on in these chapters 40 through 66 to show how Isaiah's word had come to fulfillment. Um, thoughts or questions about this? This has been a controversial issue throughout in some circles, but uh, I thought I would touch on it. Mm -hmm. Are there any other um, Bible that people um, seem to like co-author? Mm -hmm. um, yes. Uh, that's a great, great uh, question. Put your thumbs here or whatever. Uh, go to the book of Jeremiah with me. So, uh, Jeremiah, he lived during this time period right here, um, right at and after the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, essentially, here's what he does. Uh, Jeremiah, and he has a, a little friend uh, named Baruch. And Baruch is a scribe. He's a professional reader and writer and producer of scrolls. And so Baruch and Jeremiah get together and they put together a scroll representing all of Isaiah's prophecies. And uh, Isaiah is called the weeping prophet because he just had a lot of bad news to deliver and uh, not very much good news. Jeremiah. What's that? Jeremiah. What did I say? Isaiah Sorry. There you go. You know, it's so funny. I remember when I was a student and I would listen to teachers totally jumble their words like that. And I would go, I'll never do that. I'll always be like super attentive to my words and so on. But if you start talking a lot, you just you jumble your words. Okay. So what happens is they deliver the scroll of Jeremiah's prophecies to uh, the king, uh, Jehoiakim. And what does Jehoiakim do with it? He cuts it up and he throws it into the fire. That's what he thinks about Jeremiah's prophecies. Okay. So that's uh, what happens here in chapter 36. Of uh, So go to verse uh, 
Go to verse 8 of chapter 36. Mm, excuse me, verse 4. Jeremiah 36, verse 4. So Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him. And Jer Baruch is the one who wrote them in the scroll. Jeremiah told Baruch, Listen, I'm restricted. I can't go into the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people from the words of the scroll, from the scroll, the words of the Lord that I wrote to you as I dictated. Read uh, them to all the people of Judah who come to their towns. Perhaps they will bring their petition before the Lord. People will turn from their wicked ways. And uh, the anger, for the anger and, and wrath pronounced against his people and by the Lord are great. So Baruch did that, uh, everything the prophet told him to do, and he went to the temple and read. He gets the king's attention. There's this guy reading Jeremiah's prophecies in the temple, and the king wants to hear it, and he, uh, he burns, burns up the scroll. So go down to verse uh, 27 then. So after the king burned the scroll, containing the words that Baruch had written at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll. Write in it all the words that were on the first scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, burned up. And tell Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is what the Lord says. You burned that scroll and said, why did you write on it that the king of Babylon would come and destroy this land and cut off men and animals? Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of, king of Judah. He will have no one sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and to frost by night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness and bring on those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounced against them because they have not listened. So Jeremiah took another scroll. He gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah, and as Jeremiah dictated, Baruch wrote in all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So that all, we're all tracking here, but then look at that last sentence. What does that mean? So we're just like Jeremiah's dictating, Baruch's writing all down. And then, so who's responsible for the making of the book? Not Jeremiah, Baruch. And then there's this last sentence. And many similar words were added to them. Similar words from whom? By whom? <laughs> Baruch's words? Another prophet's words? More of Jeremiah's words that were spoken in other times and Baruch added them in? So it's just totally ambiguous. But what it opens up for us is that Baruch and someone else had an active role in shaping the book of Jeremiah even after Jeremiah had passed it off. There was further shaping to the book of Jeremiah after it left him. Um, so this is another good example where this is someone like a disciple of Jeremiah's, a group described. And Jeremiah passes off his prophecies, and then someone else after Jeremiah plays an active role in shaping and adding similar words to, uh, to the book of Jeremiah. So this is like an analogy, another, another example of uh, Ezekiel uh, talks about the elders of Israel coming to his house and making inquiries of him, and it seems like uh, likely he passed on a collection of his prophecies to them. So this isn't a foreign idea that uh, Isaiah says he passed off his prophecies to his disciples.
And so the question is, is the voice speaking to us in Isaiah 40 and following is from the future. And so, and it never is identified explicitly as, here I am, Isaiah, writing this. Uh, it's almost, it's actually most first-person speech of Yahweh is most of this here. But uh, the time frame is of long after Isaiah passed from the scene. So, oh, you also want to see something really cool? So there, uh, there was discovered in uh, Jerusalem, um, they're always doing archaeological digs and so on in Jerusalem, but there uh, was discovered about 10 years ago uh, a seal. Um, did I ever show this to you guys? Okay, all right. So, uh, so a seal was like something you wear on a ring or around a necklace, and when you seal up a scroll like this, uh, you would make the attachment between the two pieces, you would pour wax over it, and then use a seal that you had written like your signature in, and then you would impress that onto the wax. And so the idea is sort of like, it's like putting your signature on something and saying, hey, this is my property or this is my scroll. You can't open it unless you have my permission and so on. And so there uh, was discovered uh, a seal. It's a little tiny thing in the dirt uh, in excavation in Jerusalem. And uh, it says right on it, it says, Belonging to Baruch, son of Neriah, the scribe. Uh, so, in other words, this, this, this was a little ring or necklace that the guy who wrote the book of Jeremiah, or was responsible in shaping it, we actually have his like necklace or ring. So this is the only thing like it that's ever been discovered directly connected to a biblical author. And here's what's really cool. I'll try and find another picture of it. Um, that, that highlights it. It's it's a it's a fossilized um, it's a fossilized piece of wax or clay that had been impressed with the seal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this was on this was on something. It was on a scroll. It was on a box that belonged to him, and fell off somewhere and got buried for. 2,700 years. <laughs> yeah, really, really incredible. Um, oh, there's one uh, picture. Okay, sorry. I'm going to geek out for a second here. Hmm? No? Yeah, here we are. All right. So here's a, a full picture of it, another picture of it here. Um, do you see these lines right here? Those are thumbprint lines. Those fingerprint lines. So it's this tiny little thing. But from when Baruch had squished it into the clay and made the impression, you know, his thumb was bigger than the seal and pushed pushed over. And so those are fingerprint lines right there of his thumbprint that covered over it. Um, so just straight up fingerprints of a biblical author. What do you want, you know? <laughs> Isn't that great? Anyway, I just think that's so. It's one of the coolest things in the world. So anyway, so belonging to uh, Baruch, the son of Neriah, the scribe. So we have him to thank for, uh, and and whatever, whoever, whatever these similar words are in Jeremiah, we have him to thank for the shape of the book of Jeremiah, as we have it, which is the longest book in the entire Bible in terms of the amount of words. So thank you, Baruch. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, so uh, in terms of the two views. 
I, I personally think this view, that uh, we're listening to the voice of the disciples mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8, that Isaiah passed off his prophecies to, I think this view makes the most sense of what's happening in uh, these chapters of Isaiah. And as we read them, I'll kind of play out why I think that view makes, uh, makes sense. But these have been the two, the two standard views. What's been kind of unhelpful is that uh, in some circles, especially in the last hundred years or so, there have been some people who say uh, the book of Isaiah is only truly inspired. You only believe in the inspiration of Scripture if you hold this view right here. Um, in other words, that the whole book was authored from the pen of Isaiah, you know. Um, and I, I don't see the logic of that. <laughs> So uh, the, the Bible was written by many different kinds of people. And uh, lots of the biblical books, most of them are uh, anonymous, were authored by someone we don't know. Um, and that doesn't uh, prevent Paul in any way from saying it's scripture that is inspired. Um, so obviously Isaiah was inspired as he said his poetry, but, but Paul attaches inspiration specifically to the scrolls of the scripture. Um, which doesn't necessitate a specific person is the one who wrote them down. Something like that. So, anyhow, any other thoughts or questions about the authorship issue? Um, I know um, there's a book called Made by the uh, Apostle. Yes, yes. That's right, yeah. Is that a different author ascribed to Ruth, or is that the same? Yeah, so, uh, so I mentioned this last week. Um, after the Hebrew Bible kind of took shape and came to its closure, so there's lots of weird stuff in the Bible, lots of interesting people in the Bible, and so like Baruch's one of them. And so kind of the, one of the things that took place in Jewish culture as the Bible became widely read and so on, was we want to find answers to all these questions and, wow, wouldn't it be cool if someone found a secret letter from Baruch and so on. And so there was a lot of material that was produced post-Bible that claimed to be connected to people and places from biblical time period. And so uh, there's, it's called the Letter of Baruch, because uh, Jeremiah in the book, it mentions a letter that Baruch wrote and then doesn't contain much of the letter at all. And so lo and behold, 300 years later, someone wrote the letter, you know? So it's, it's kind of like conspiracy theory a little bit. So these writings, uh, they're called uh, apocryphal writings. They came uh, to be, you know, collected and read and even treasured in Jewish and Christian communities. And this became a uh, Reformation, Catholic Church Reformation debate. Because in some of those writings were doctrines or theological ideas that became uh, important in certain Roman Catholic traditions, like... Uh, being able to offer money to the church so that your dead relatives could have their sins forgiven. And so that idea is talked about in a few places in some of these writings. Luther came along and Calvin and were like, no, that's not actually in the Bible. That's in these other books. And the Catholic uh, Church in 1546 made a declaration that actually these books are in the Bible after all. <laughs> so that's why those extra books are in the Catholic Bible is because they were declared to be in the Bible by the Pope in 1546. But they were never actually part of the Hebrew Bible. That's my two-minute version of that whole very complex <laughs> historical debate. So, um, yeah, so we, 
we don't actually have anything from Baruch except the book of Jeremiah. Uh, not being able to read Hebrew, uh, one of the arguments in the trial of James in mm -hmm. writing, he having read the book in Hebrew, do you notice significant trial change in the poetry and in the writing? Um, yeah, yeah, kind of. I, for me, the clincher is that time and again we'll see the perspective of the speaker here is speaking of Babylon and judgment as past, long past. Um, there are references even to uh, the temple having been destroyed. In chapter 63, there's a reference to the temple being destroyed. And that wasn't destroyed until like a hundred years after Isaiah had already died. And so, for me, the clincher, because, uh, you know, depending on what kind of day you're having, you might write in one style or another, or, you know, so I don't think that's a, that's a, that's a home run argument. For me, it's the time, the time perspective. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if we didn't, I mean, if we didn't have that story in Jeremiah 36, then you would just assume the whole book, the whole book comes from Jeremiah. But we do have chapter 36, <laughs> which shows that whatever that first line in Jeremiah means, to say of a book, these are the words of Jeremiah, doesn't mean that someone else couldn't have authored the book and have even supplemented the book in some way. So we might have an idea of authorship that we're imposing on these ancient texts. Because um, we think of, of writing a book as you sit down with your computer and you go like this, and it's all from me, and I do it over a period of however long you do it. And so uh, the, the making and the authorship and conceptions of authorship was, was, was different, apparently. And so also I think the presence of Isaiah to say that Isaiah lived and worked during the time of up to Hezekiah and then we have in the book Hezekiah passing from the scene and the story about Isaiah handing over his prophecies to his disciples. And you can start to put together, okay, maybe there's something more complex going, going on here. Um, so all that being said, what these disciples are doing, they're not like making up new prophecies or something. Their whole point is to say Isaiah's prophecies of judgment came true. They came true. And so what they're going to play out then is, therefore, his promises of salvation are going to come true. In fact, they're, about, they're going to happen sometime in the future. And so almost all of the images of salvation here in these chapters here, they're just borrowing Isaiah's language and ideas from the earlier parts of the book. So in a way, I'd say the whole book is about Isaiah's words. About Isaiah's words. And these chapters actually contain Isaiah's words these chapters contain, I think, the words of his disciples uh, unpacking the meaning and significance of Isaiah's words. Does that, make, does that make sense? So the whole book is about Isaiah and his words. Um, there you go. Other thoughts, questions? I'm curious to what the Orthodox Jewish argument is that Jesus is not the Messiah. Ah, let's wait until we get to the servant poems and Isaiah 53. To get there, yeah, yeah. Um, great. 
Well, let's uh, let's do this then. It's eleven fifty. Do you want to do something similar to last week, where I think this is kind of a natural stopping point before we dive into chapter forty and following? Do you, can we take a break and then maybe come back at twelve uh, forty-five? Then they'll give us fifty or so minutes for for a lunch break, and then we'll jump into uh, we're going to look at chapters forty to forty-eight specifically this afternoon. So, all right, cool. Break. Have a good lunch. Thank <laughs> you.